is destroyed nonchalance. Taking culture apart one episode at a time. A social commentary podcast on pop culture, fashion, film, and music. Destroyed Nonchalance. Uh, this is Troy. And Rick. And I think this is one of our first recordings of the new year. Um, yeah. So, Happy New Year. Much belated. And um, I guess from the top, let's just kind of go over how things have been. I mean, it's February, what, 4th at this point? Yeah, just starting February. <laughs> okay, so let's catch each other up and the audience on January. What have you been up to? Well, we've been up to most of the same thing, but the first thing is just getting over the hump of the new year and getting back into the swing of things. I don't know why it was particularly weird and difficult this year, but I think... Well, our cafe closed down, so like we had work. to find another one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and when you're so used to this routine where then that is taken, one of the big parts of it where, okay, everything will be fine once I'm back. And it just, we had to find something else. Yeah, we were like, we gave ourselves a break over Christmas the holidays and we knew we'd get back to the routine of it you know because a lot of it we do like but <laughs> we go over to Rathbone Square and we go over to a cafe that we really like and it closed over the holidays so that kind of threw everything up into it made it felt like made it feel like chaos at least to me um yeah, but we got we got back into it and we didn't have a choice. Really. Yeah, so I mean, where we're at works, and aside from that, and stabilizing into an into that new routine, we we did watch a few movies. I just of have course, a few as always. Yeah, I have a few. I mean, in TV shows and um, certain other things, but some of the ones I don't remember probably for a reason. But yeah. one of the new ones this year, I think it may have been the first one we watched this year was Little Women. Oh, that's right. Yeah. God, with, that seems uh, like so long ago. Yeah. It's by uh, directed by Greta Gerwig and, you know, Emma Watson and Saoirse Ronan are in it. And really good cast. Um, yeah. Timothy Chalamet is in it as well. And I mean, I really like Greta Gerwig, but no Oscar nomination for her. <laughs> Which is really, I don't know, just shocking. Borderline yeah. outrage. Um, I just the... think it speaks to women in Hollywood. And, you know, she makes a female-oriented movie that's really good by any measure. And, you know, just critically acclaimed, but somehow it made itself. Yeah, exactly, because it, it did get a Best Movie nomination. And, you know... <laughs> How did the movie direct itself <laughs> if it's going to have that? Right. Um, it's a crowded field, but still. Were there any actors um, whose performances were nominated? I think Sersha Ronan was the... Uh, Sersha and, um, you know, I, I can't remember her name, but she was in Midsummer, And she's, oh, yeah, she's this okay. new 
this new actress, uh, Plow, something Plow. Okay. Um, is her last name, but she got nominated as well for some, some BAFTAs and, uh, I don't think an Oscar nomination, but, you know, I, I mean, it's, it, it was recognized basically. And it, and it wasn't cause I've, I've never seen Little Women before, or I mean, I've heard about it, but I've never yeah, really I'm not seen that familiar. it. So I'm sure I've seen it, um, like a movie version of it. Cause there have been a few, but it's been a while and none of them made an impression on me like seeing it this time did. Yeah, and I mean she really added her her take on it and I I thought it was effective. Did it seem like a Greta Gerwig movie? I think it did in cuz uh it kind of has that I don't want to say quirky. Yeah, <laughs> that's spice, I mean. like a little, like you know, when they were dancing out in the veranda with their, you know, moving their arms. You know, they wouldn't have danced like that back then, but maybe, maybe they would have. But that that seemed like very Greta Gerwig, right? Yeah, I mean, it. I think it it had her in it, and some directors you can't really tell. <laughs> really, no, I mean, I mean some uh, of them you can't, and yeah, again, I mean. It seems like if you're going to not nominate the director along with the movie, then there needs to be a really good reason why. But maybe it's just the crowded field. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we really liked, I really liked um, Little Women. We also saw Jojo Rabbit. Oh, which yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it, we had yeah. different differing takes on that, I think. It, it, it just, it's a little bit mixed because of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And... I don't, I don't know. I mean, what did you think about it? I really liked it. And I only learned later about um, the director and who's, you know, who's playing Taika the role. Wikiti. Yeah. So the fact that he's playing the Hitler role and he does it with such a sense of humor. Um, I really like Scarlett Johansson in the movie. And um, I like what it says politically about buying into categories that your acquaintances and the people that you're surrounded with may not fit into so neatly. And I like that dynamic. And then the melting of like, um, just this preconceived notion of who your enemies are supposed to be. And I mean, I I did like it because it it was from a child's point of view, from a kid's point of view, which I don't think that we we've seen very much especially from a a non uh, Jewish child point of view right that it was basically the hitler youth and i mean i i i thought it was uh, really good and clever how they laid the whole story out including you know not not seeing how his mom ends uh, in, that... in, in in fully it it was very subtle but really effective and it's just right. what a stab in the heart and i the the part i didn't like was the hitler hitler being a funny character just like a, yeah this like goofy guy because i mean everybody knows why but i i guess i can see why they did that and they did it that way because it it is the the kid's point of view and it also takes the piss out of people who takes who take themselves too seriously i mean well yeah but it's a serious it is a serious topic and well yeah i mean this hasn't been done before and he did it really really well it was it was 
Oh, it was on the line, for sure. He was walking the line, but I think that just the the end results. He yeah, yeah. It was I a mean, good, I good think director. I liked the approach of making the whole idea of like the Nazi idea from like the child's level perspective up to Hitler just seems so ridiculous. And the ridiculous links that you have to take it to to actually convince yourself that you're believing all of this. And then the the, the kid like m- like melts it down. I mean he has he's concocted these monsters and you know and then this these monster stories are held up to be like something really valuable to this this Nazi regime and you know you should be really proud of yourself but it just it's so ridiculous compared to the the reality the, the face-to-face interaction that the kid and the girl go through and when you compare this ridiculous like idea of world order with just like the simplicity of face-to-face interaction I think humor is like a really good approach to take to it because, I mean, really, it's really just dumb. Yeah, and you can see it around him, around the kid, and and you could technically see how how it, it would have been if it had been filmed in, in, in the ridiculous sense, not that, I mean, it, it was still becoming psychophans of this, and, and these followers and, and just them... This bratty neurotic that anger, and like, yeah, it's it's all. I liked that. Yeah, so I mean, it is. It was good, but <laughs> it, yeah, it was on that line. It was uncomfortable. I it, mean, yeah, it, it was uncomfortable, and I mean, it had its its funny moments and all of that. Right. And I think the the other kind of like Holocaust. Just that era, because we saw two movies. One of them you did not like, The Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. And it was about the farmers and that the one farmer saying he was not going to fight for Hitler and he didn't believe in this and he was jailed and all of that. So, I mean, it was... We we got a few perspectives slow. of <laughs> I mean, I I don't mind a slow movie, but it can't be uh, predictable. Yeah. I mean, no, and it was slow. really long, and it was I like the movie, but it it could have been edited down a bit. But I mean, I sat through that whole movie <laughs> thinking about everything else I needed to be doing that I couldn't be doing because I was sitting in that movie, but and nobody it thinks was just about, not ending. No, nobody thinks about what that looked like and everybody thinks well how come all of the german people didn't do this and didn't do that and when actually there were a lot of well, german yeah people. i mean while, while there are realities of you know i mean armchair footballer people where you know you don't know what you would do unless you were in the situation or what you could do and the consequences of actually yeah, the, trying the consequences to resist especially that. i mean that was a man of principle and you don't hear the stories of the the people that resisted and i mean they were completely powerless and i was surprised that it went on so long like they would have kept these german prisoners that did not want to fight because they didn't believe in this cause right that they even kept them alive for as long as they did and and did trials and stuff it 
Right. What were we listening to just the other day, and it might have been yesterday, where they were trying to explain how difficult it was for the Nazi officers to actually start getting into something like murder and this kind of torture? Yeah, it was uh, Terry Gross uh, and For Fresh Air. Right. Because it was the Holocaust Remembrance Day just a a few, uh, maybe last week, I think. Right. So, yeah, I mean, they, they had to make it easy for the officers to... To kill and to exterminate. Because they weren't looking to jump into that just right away. So maybe that plays into why they kept this farmer alive for as long as they did. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't exactly. And I, you know, there's more parts of the story that this highlights and that it just fills in. Because it it was like what they were talking about in Fresh Air that it, it wasn't the plan initially to do what they did. Right. And it the, the way things just escalated and... Yeah, so, I mean... <laughs> okay. Just finishing up, um, we also watched The Bombshell with... Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the story of uh, Fox News and, and uh, Roger Ailes and... Moment, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, Charlie Theron was great in it, and so was Nicole Kidman and Margot Robbie, and it's... It... it I kind of connected it to the morning show. I was just going to ask, what did you think of those two in relation to each other? I think the morning show is... It's a little more raw. Right. And... Like really, in what way? Because you actually see some of that happening and... You see, the, you see some of the it. The aggression is a little more escalated. They have more time... Yeah. ...to explore that. And all of the things that happened in the morning show... Right happened ten tenfold probably at Fox and over decades right. and people were destroyed and probably suicidal and just all all of that like I think they just didn't have enough time but they did a really good job with the time they had and it made me in- interested in people like Megan Kelly, who I hadn't really paid attention to before, and right, we've seen interviews with her after we saw the movie. Yeah, she was on Bill Maher. Yeah, and um, just thinking about how Charlize Theron played (laughs) her and captured the mannerisms and the voice, the posture, the facial expressions. I mean, yeah, it was it was like a transformation. For Charlie Theron, she really got the essence. She did a re- she did a really good job. So I think yeah, she deserved that. And I mean, I, I can let you mention some of the other things that you've been up to that we have as well. Um, I'm, well, we did go to the Odeon Lester Square to hear Todd Phillips talk about Joker, which was really um, insightful. We enjoyed that, but we can talk about that at another time, um, because we haven't really talked about Joker very much, and I think it just touches on so many things that I'm studying, that you've probably studied, um, and things that we think about and talk about a lot. And, you know, it's a movie that's really just, it touched a nerve in the mainstream culture, and now it's been nominated. And it's not and- as easy to kind of... It's one of those movies that walks the line. So it'll be interesting to talk about that. And I know we've mentioned it before here or there in the podcast, yeah, but, but we never it, really talked about it in depth. Yeah, and, and especially his answers. It'll be good to talk about that. Yeah. 
And I don't know if we've talked about going to see um, everybody's talking about Jamie and the podcast yet. Um, but that would be a subject that I'd like to get more into only because, like, first of all, it's a really good musical. And, you know, we got to see Bianca Del Rio in it. But it has an interesting connection or, you know, a similarity to, um, was it Sex Education? Yeah, that, that the show we yeah. watched. We we actually finished the season. We yeah. finished Sex Education. That was so good. And I forgot it. I don't know. There's so many similarities running through it when you look at the gay characters and that high school age. Um, obviously, Sex Education is not a musical, but the characters go through some similar like situations. Um, so, if we have time at some point, I would like to talk about. Yeah, because we need to go see it again, Jamie. Because <laughs> they changed, yeah, they changed Jamie, so we'll have we to see it again, it and, and maybe we can uh, talk they about it, then. it No. And then finally, we've seen Madonna's Madame X tour twice, and Which we're we were supposed to, to see it about. with Serena um, on, what was the... The 27th. The 27th, but as anybody who follows Madonna knows, she's canceled over 10 shows by now. She's injured. And that was one of the ones that Madonna canceled. So Serena, we're going to be seeing um, the Madame X with Serena on the 6th. Um, keeping our fingers crossed, but it seems like Madonna's implemented a schedule where she does two of the shows, takes a break, take two of the shows, I mean, does two of the shows, take a break. Yeah. Keeping um, our fingers crossed. There is a concern that the second night, the second show that she does is uh, a truncated, kind of abbreviated show where she cuts out like the first four or five songs. So hopefully that won't happen. Maybe, who knows? But that'll be something that we can talk about after we see it with yeah, Serena. Yeah, but we want to talk about it in full and then maybe we'll talk with Serena about it a bit as well once she sees it. Okay, so that's all on my list um, as far as entertainment and everything because as you, Rick, know are painfully aware, I'm heading into confirmation. I don't know anything research about project, that. <laughs> which is, I'm just at the point in my research project, um, it's like a year and a half in and now it's coming to the point where I need to prove that my project is likely to make a contribution to knowledge by the time that it needs to be completed, which is like in 2022. So this is the last time that um, the university will be checking in on what I'm doing before um, I submit. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I haven't done any field work yet. I'm still waiting for ethical clearance. Uh, my supervisor, Jane, she's, she and I have talked about it, and there's a pretty good feeling that I can get through confirmation not having done any field work um, by really explaining and detailing my intervention in this field that I'm studying in terms of theory and the logic of how it connects to methodology. And so and you've already gotten good feedback. On yeah, yesterday I had a presentation. Um, it's. I don't know. It's like a the first hurdle to get through where I have to present to peers and faculty at UAL, UAL, and um, it went pretty well. And 
There have been times when I've given presentations to peers and faculty and not really gotten any questions or feedback from the audience. And I mean, that I just chalk that up to the experience of doing it there. But yesterday was quite different. Um, yeah, I got lots of questions and lots of feedback. Um, parents found what I was talking about relevant because they have kids who are getting into Instagram or completely rejecting Instagram. And because I laid out like um, basically my thesis architecture, I got good feedback on how precise I was with it. And um, so, yeah, I'm pretty confident moving forward. But... Moving forward means doing a 10,000-word paper and presenting to an expert in the field that I'm studying and then um, having a conversation, a discussion with that expert (laughs) where the expert can grill me on anything that she feels like I've missed or um, something I need to pay attention to. And, you know, honestly, I quite like those times and... Um, um, it doesn't make me so much nervous because, again, this isn't the part where um, everything comes to an end. I feel like I've done well enough so far and prepared enough so far to get to the point where... And you know what you're talking about. It's not... I mean, prepared enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... Like, that get- is literally almost all we do. I know we talk about what we've been doing, but those are little spots here and there when there's food in front of us. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. Um, I think tonight we're going to get away and we're going to go see... I don't even remember which movie we said we're going to go see. It's... um, Queen and Slim? Queen and Slim, and it's basically like a runaway kind of Thelma and Louise-ish, but not Thelma and Louise... What right. are the criminals? Yeah, yeah. I don't even remember if I've seen a trailer for it. It's been so long. No, I mean, yeah, I remember it. It looks good. It's, um, it'll be interesting, I think. And we have comfy seats anyway. We have what? Comfy seats. Oh, comfy <laughs> seats. And it's also a popcorn snack opportunity. So should I talk about what I talked about in my presentation? Are you? Do you want to hear anything about it? Or is it going to be boring? No, it's not going to be boring. I mean, I I think you should talk a little bit about it. Don't give away too much. I I'm always. I think you made me a little paranoid whenever I was working on a project, and it was like, okay, you can say this much, but keep it close to the chest. Yeah, I mean. Honestly, it's a lot to go into anyway. I guess the part I could focus on today would be, um, you know, just fashion as a practice. Um, so what's, what is that? Because I had a really hard time when I was looking into this because it's, it's, it just, uh, it's not very, it doesn't have a clear definition and it was really a lot of information that you really have to read through a few times to to gauge what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. 
because everyone has this idea of what fashion is. And most of the time you think of like Oxford Street and um, clothing and dress. I mean, I think more people just think of it as clothing. I don't even know if they think of it as dress. Um, and then, you know, you think of like trends. I mean, what when you hear the word fashion, what do you think of? Well, I mean, I think of, of I think of clothing. I think of runway shows. I think of trends. I mean, if there's a a jacket of the season or or you know just the way people are dressing, really. Right. But when you when I put it together with as a practice, I mean, you can I can think of what that might mean, but this is an academic term, right? <laughs> so okay. it's like I mean, it I it can sound like a simple definition. But it's it. I know it's not. There's right. more. There's a lot more to it. Which is kind of like what our job is to do, especially. Yeah. So okay, there's clothing, but then you mentioned trend, and I mean, and what's a trend? It's something that what develops over time, and it changes. Why does it change? Why is it not just fashion? Why is trend and time even a part of it? And that gets into the complexity of the definition of fashion that I'm using. And again, this is all just from my perspective, right? So, um, yes, fashion is connected with clothing. Fashion is connected with dress. Fashion is connected with the media that talks about clothing and dress, um, the industry that sells clothing and dress, and, um, yeah, but fashion as a practice, for me, starts to look at the difference between fashion and design. And um, practice is something that you do. And what allows you to do it? There's a level of access what allows you to do it, there's a level of understanding of what to do. And there's a level of understanding of what's possible to do and what's appropriate to do. And for me, this idea of the possible and the appropriate um, practice is very much connected to configuring that um, and relating that. And those kind of ideas, that process of configuring it, um, is kind of this reflexive capacity changes because situations change and your social sphere changes that you're interacting in. So you're moving from one context to the next. You're bringing different considerations into mind. Like if you're going yeah, to... Yeah, but you just... I'm, what? I might just jump in here and there, but what you were just saying made me think that fashion as a practice is the the creatives like that that is their practice the the creators behind fashion and what they can do right not not the people on the other end that are consuming that fashion right so I, that's where i'm confused with okay. what fashion as a practice means okay let me go over some like key reference concepts here that I use, and then I can go back to answer your question. Okay, so I really like uh, Joanne Entwistle's description of fashion as um, a fashion is a social practice that's experienced through the body, right? 
And um, there's a theorist, Simmel, who says that fashion is kind of like a dialectical energy, right? It's a dialectical process. So that means that there's some reflection going on and some comparison. And you have to creatively handle this um, balance between what I would call the appropriate and the possible. So going back to your question, you think of like the creatives. Well, no, every time you put on clothing, right? Every time you fashion how you're going to appear in social, in any kind of social situation, you're likely to consider what's appropriate for that situation and what is possible for, like, what are you going to choose from to put on, right? So is it possible for you to put on like a Gucci gown? No, you don't own one. I mean, is it possible to go naked to the movies? Um, yes, but is it appropriate? No. So you, even as someone who's just using what's been purchased, right, you still have to configure your solution to balancing the appropriate and the possible. And you're just, re- and you know, people largely are relying on consumed objects to do that. But designers are also relying on consumed objects to do that because they didn't go out and grow the cotton and they didn't go out and, um, you know, make the silk. And um, they're relying on suppliers. And suppliers are relying on suppliers of fertilizer or the, the seeds to cotton. So it's all a process of consumption. You're just making purchases and you're consuming at different levels. Even if you were going to make your own clothes, you're still going to buy the yarn, you're still going to buy the thread or whatever. And you could, you know, make more from scratch the clothing that you're going to be wearing. But it's not possible to fashion without consuming. You're going to use some kind of resource and you're going to get that resource from somewhere and it's not going to be for free. Whether you've invested your time into planting or you've invested your time into constructing or you've invested your time into walking down Oxford Street to make a purchase and you hand over cash that you've earned from some other means, you're going to consume. And then that's in the realm of the possible. That all of that addresses what's possible. What's possible? What's available in your supply chain? What's available at Topshop that you can buy? But then, what do you do with it? That's the practice of understanding what's appropriate, and that's kind of like an understanding that you grow up with. That is so embedded into your understanding of the social world that it's sometimes it takes a lot of analysis and really exploring your own thoughts to understand what you consider to be appropriate. I mean, therapy gets at that, artistic processes get to that. So fashion as a practice applies to anybody. And that practice can be, it's basically the the fashion that you wear for the practice that you're doing. So a drag queen is a drag queen. So she's going to, that's her practice. And that's the fashion that she's going to be wearing or exactly. I'm, I'm, you know, not dressing too wildly, but that decision of how I arrived at how I dressed is my practice. Right. And everybody has their own. If somebody's a punk or whatever, that's their 
practice. Yeah, that's their practice. And then, I mean, you could even take it a step further. Like, so you have the fashion, you know, and what resources you have access to and where you need to bring this all together will impact how you fashion. And yeah, so that that does connect to this thing. Well, it, it reminds me of this thing I came across. It's a fashion localism. Right. So, it seeks, so what's that about? It it seeks to explore localism in the context of fashion. Right. In localism, place matters. And in fashion and fashion practice, place also matters. So fashion localism is seen as a principle and practice of sustainability. Right. Where place-based and community values describe a fashion system. So that's, that's the community around you and how they either restrict or contribute to your practice, your right. fashion practice. If maybe the community gets together and they decide, we have a community closet, don't buy anything else. This is going to oh, be our practice. Yeah. This is the okay. options. So I think that's that came up in, in some things I was looking at, the fashion localism. I, I think more surrounding the sustainability aspect. Right. And then, I mean, that localism is always there, but it's helpful to frame it, especially if you want to leverage that towards like sustainability. Um, and then, unfortunately, I think that those kind of ideas can get co-opted by marketing and um and have <laughs> yeah and i mean good for the sustainability movement if they can kind of reclaim that and that's some of what um escobar talks about in the designs for the pluriverse book and um this these worlds coexisting and it is that kind of localism but then um, you have the digital space where localism gets redefined because it's not a it's not a locality based on geography. It's locality based on digital space, coding, access to technology, but it still clusters people together and it still clusters people around um, concerns and interests. And I mean, well, yeah, everything is digitized. You can have your your fashion practice in real life, but then there's games like Second Life or whatever game, fill in the blank, where you can dress up your avatar. Right. So yeah. you have to take you have to take on a practice there as well on who you might want to be or who you might want to be there where you don't get to do that practice in real life. Yeah. So it's pretty much borderless. It's pretty much borderless. And I think that like localism has its challenges. But I think that there's a real benefit to if you can actually come up with something that's local and becomes identifiable to other like cultures and like worlds, then sort of like with music and how um, characteristics of one genre of music and one locality of music will spread then and influence other types of music then you can say then you can see like okay this locality came up with this because it tried to come up with something that was like different and kind of identified itself 
now it has like a real contribution to like the bigger world and it can help shape um, and influence the localized fashion well yeah of other places there's there's the the local fashion of a country or a, a region right but then there's the fashion that transcends borders because I don't think that all German people wear later hosen or all Japanese people are geisha. Or you dress. can go anywhere and find an H&M, basically. Yeah, so somebody in any country right now that has an H&M will be wearing the jeans I'm wearing. Right. Mostly, I mean, they don't... Yeah, they're, they're jeans, you know? anybody, right. Somebody from America to Japan will be wearing that same pair of jeans. So there's the, the fashion practices that are also borderless. Right. And there's fashion practices that are specific to a region, kind of like music. Yeah. Can be. But, you know, we were just talking about um, the movie um, Jojo Rabbit and what it's like when you have your idea of something and then when you're face to face with the person having like an embodied interaction and the difference. So you can see how something like H&M which you can buy the same pairs of jeans across the globe, you stop having an idea of how they're made. Whereas if it's like a local idea of fashion, especially if it's produced locally, you start having a really good idea of how, how it's made. Like you go to Scotland, you go to Edinburgh, and you see like all of these wool um, shops that yeah. are trading in wool. I mean, you can bet that the population around Edinburgh and in Scotland are going to have a very are going to have a much more informed idea about what goes into wool because they're around where it's produced. And that's of course it's been like intentionally obscured. But we're not living around where the jeans from H&M are made. I mean, no, and I, yeah, I agree with that cuz then you have like Italy and leather or even in Mexico, where I used to live, the small town, we would, there was a factory that made shoes, and a lot of the local people worked on those shoes or would take them home. And I mean, I can like I can walk down Oxford Street and see some of those shoes. Oh, really? I, I know how, I know how a city can smell like the leather, and I know how, you know family and friends would work on those shoes you know some of it is in the factory but some of it you can take home so you can put the pieces together right so yeah it it is it can be very like region specific where you know i don't know how they make these jeans but you know somewhere in turkey or india they know they're gonna know and yeah because it's they live it and it's around and it makes that whole idea of accountability so much more immediate. And I mean, the, the, this fashion as a practice too, because you can have the same pair of blue, blue jeans, but right. some people will not fold them up. Um, maybe people in London, they have a style where you're showing ankle and you're that's, that's the trend. And right. other countries will not wear their jeans like that. Or certain countries... The 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 trend on having ripped up jeans might be a thing. So I mean, it is. It can still. You can still kind of like narrow down if you really want to. Right. 
Because so at some point it becomes almost like a, a canvas that you do your thing with, even yeah. if you bought it from a store. Or get then, a patch or whatever, add something to it. it right. Is. Yeah. And that's part of design, right? Um, because when you see, for example, like all of the guys rolling up the bottom of their pants legs and showing some ankle, then it's like, okay, well, that's appropriate and that's possible. And I've never done that before. So how do I do it? Then you start moving into design. That's when you start interfacing with whatever, whatever materials that you're working with and you design that. And so then you become a person who rolls their pants leg up and shows the ankle. And yeah, I mean... And would you have thought to do that in isolation? No, it's a social thing. But again, that design evidences your imagination's consideration of what's possible and appropriate. And you came to the conclusion that this works and it's something that I should do. And if you took a selfie every day, then you might see a period when that rolling up of the pant leg started and eventually when it stopped and you're like, okay, and so then that became a trend for you that connected to like a trend in the general, you know, mainstream or whatever. Out yeah, the street. And it, it all depends on place right. as well. I mean, the jeans I wear are a little bit tighter than they used to be when I didn't live in London because it is a colder city I don't, or whatever the reason. I used London's to wear kind more, of known for tight jeans. Yeah, right? the more loose jeans. jeans when I was in Texas. And mm. I didn't even consider before like it was like a boot you would cut or die whatever. wearing nice skinny jeans in texas yeah most i mean of we tried months. wearing the the skinny jeans in new york in the summer and it was just like no we have to go to the store and buy shorts right now because we're gonna die yeah that, that's not possible but it's it's more possible in colder weather right so that just goes into like that shows you just how much of what you don't really think about shapes how you see what's appropriate and possible and plays out through your fa- your practice of fashion. I mean, that's how I'm looking at it. There's so many ways to like look at it. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> this podcast is helpful, but it has to be written down somewhere where it's like SEO to hell so that when somebody searches the term fashion as practice, something will come up. <laughs> Because okay. papers come up that nobody yeah. has access to or generic random pages that... I have access to it. I mean, that's the, I'm the terms together, fashion as practice, mm-hmm. it's it's very hard to find it together. And like you said, it's it can be seen in different ways. So yeah, I, mean, I wish somebody would get one way down and it's like, okay, agreed, this is my way. Put my name, my stamp on it and okay, here, Google, eat. And, you well, know, no, I mean, it's really interesting that you say that because um, I was looking at fashion on Wikipedia and the people that I'm used to associating with the study of fashion don't appear anywhere on Wikipedia. Because you have to go in and edit it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I don't I mean, yeah, Wikipedia is its own thing. But yeah, I mean, there's fashion as a consumed product. There's fashion as an industry, fashion as media. There's so many, yeah, there's so many faces of it. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to continue to dissect it. But fashion, I I don't know if fashion as a practice is, it's interesting. 
It sounds abstract it when I describe it the way that I do. I mean, but that's but the, it's it's also simple in a way once you get it, right? And once you understand it that way, it I makes think so. sense. But if you're, you know, here's your writing assignment. Tell me about this, and you're just. I mean, you have to go and look and learn, right? And it was very difficult to find something that was specific. Right. If you're, you know, if you just have a few hours, of, of course, once you spend days fleshing something out. Years. Yeah. <laughs> then yeah. you really develop your own things. You take what you see and then you change it. If it's not there, then you blend it with something else and then become something new. Yeah. I mean, to kind of close this out, um, some of the feedback that I got yesterday was that my chances of getting through confirmation reasonably well are good, you know, because I've moved from literature review to kind of putting together my own ideas of these theories and concepts, which I wasn't consciously doing. It was just, it just sort of happened, which is good, because I don't know if I could do if I was consciously trying to do something like that. But yeah, just the exposure and having to work with them and use them as like lenses to analyze what you're seeing out in the world or analyze like texts that you're reading, academic stuff. It just kind of happens and it's... Well, yeah, but then you make something like the map that you made yeah. and you, you see these maps and these books and people try to explain them out, but you've made yourself invaluable your brain and valuable to the explanation of that map. Somebody can't just look at it and say, this means this. I really think that like dyslexia and dyspraxia like come into play when it comes, like if I didn't have that uh, like schematic, I would lose track of it like really easy. It would just leak out of my brain and I'd have to reacquaint it myself with it like regularly just regularly well so, it's, it sounds good congrats uh, on the feedback well thanks it's deserved even though i get to be a slave to it all the time <laughs> all the work all right well thanks everyone for joining us again in a month into this 2020 should be an interesting year we have a lot coming up i'm thinking about the elections but um you have to have other than that series just on that craziness all right until next time bye thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed it make sure you subscribe to our podcast we put it out weekly and follow us on social media on every platform instagram twitter facebook we're 